Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time. We are doing our survey through the Old Testament and we are up to the historical books of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. We've entitled uh, this series, Israel's Kings and Prophets. And so this covers the time period in the scripture from the death of David up into the time of the Babylonian captivity. And today we're in lesson three, and we're going to be focusing on the kingship of Solomon. And if you remember last week when we did lesson two, we looked at how Solomon came to really to sit on the throne of David. And we talked about it last week as being some serious royal drama with regards to his older brother, which was Adonijah making a claim to the throne as well, and how God, through the servants of David, worked that out, and now Solomon is on the throne. So now we're going to come to chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 28 of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 of Second Chronicles, and we're going to talk about Solomon's retribution and Solomon's wisdom. Now, Second Chronicles, the passage there, doesn't talk about the retribution issue. We're going to focus on 1 Kings for that. But Second Chronicles and chapter 3 of 1 Kings focuses on the issue of his wisdom. So let's talk about the retribution issue. Now, before we begin our lesson today, we need to kind of remind ourselves of a couple of things that we know so far. First of all, in chapter 1, we saw that the fourth son, David's fourth son, laid claim to the throne of David while he was still alive. And David didn't really stop that, but he was probably the legitimate heir. We know that the oldest boy of David was killed by his brother Absalom. Absalom was the third son. He's now dead. The second son, who is the son of Abigail, his mother Abigail, we don't know what happened to him except that we assume that he is dead as well. So that means legitimately, as far as the culture of that time, the fourth son would have had a legitimate claim to the throne of David. Now, we know prior from our studies in Second Samuel that David promised the throne to Bathsheba's son, Solomon. And we know from 2 Samuel that Scripture records that the Lord loves Solomon. And so we saw really the finagling there and David's making uh, Solomon king. And of course, Adonijah, you know, he's fearing for his life, goes and hangs on the horns of the altar. And uh, basically Solomon says, whether you live or die is in your hands. So he came and bowed the knee at the end of uh, our passage in chapter 2, uh, in verse 12, he came and bowed the knee to Solomon, and uh, then Solomon told him to go to his house. So we're going to pick up with that right there. So there's going to be some retribution going on that we're going to see here. Now, we've got to remind ourselves that it's not just Adonijah. He had some fellow servants of David who were in conspiracy with him. So there was Abathar the priest, or the high priest, and then there was also Joab. Remember our good old scoundrel Joab, who's the commander of the army of Israel, who murdered 
Amasa, the commander of Judah, as well as Abner, that is Saul's uncle, who was at the time the commander of Israel as well. And so we see that there, David had said for him not to be able to go down to his grave in peace. Basically, Solomon, in your wisdom, figure this out. You take care of him. But also there's another guy that we're going to talk about today named Shammai. Remember, he is the one who mocked and threw stones at David as he was fleeing from Absalom. And David did not lift a hand against him and said he would live. But remember, David said last week to Solomon, don't let this guy go down to the grave in peace as well. So we're going to see all of these stories come together here in chapter 2, starting with verse 13. So we're not going to read these portions of Scripture simply because of time, but we are going to refer to them. So when you come to chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, we're going to see now that Adonijah has a request. He comes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and he's going to make a request. So here, here's what we're going to see. First of all, Adonijah approached Bathsheba and stated that he came peaceably. Now you're probably wondering, she asked the question, how are you coming? Why would she ask that? Well, first of all, she knows very much that Nathan had said to her that if she didn't do something about this by going to David, she wouldn't live. Adonijah would take care of her. So obviously he she knows that there's some sort of issue going on here. So Adonijah comes to her and she says, how are you coming? And he says, peaceably. Now what follows with this is really interesting and really enlightening. Adonijah claimed that the nation had expectations for him to be king. In fact, let me, let me read that to you. It's kind of wild what he says here. He said, verse 15, Then he said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel set their expectation, expectations on me that I should reign. So basically he's saying the kingdom was mine, and the nation had expectations about me being the king. Now, why would they have expectations? Well, again, culturally, the eldest son would assume the role of kingship. Now, we know from Scripture that God often reverses that by choosing the youngest son. We've seen that all the way from the beginning, all the way back to the whole issue of choosing Isaac over uh, Ishmael choosing Jacob over Esau, we see the selection of the younger over the older. God often does that. And so here we see, well, think about it, David. David, the youngest, chosen over his brothers to be the anointed. So Adonijah is making this claim. That then he also says this. This is amazing. Look at what he says. However, Okay, that's a big word. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Okay, so now Adonijah is saying, well, it's been turned over. Everything's turned upside down. And 
Now it's my brother's, and it's, of course, God's will. There's kind of a resentment there in his statement that God is the one who messed this up. So he also stated that the Lord gave the kingdom to his brother. Okay? He gave the kingdom to his brother. Now, here's what he's wanting. It's, it's kind of interesting here. He's wanting something from Bathsheba as far as he wants her to do something. So here's what he wanted. He wanted Bathsheba to ask Solomon to give Ebesheg to him as wife. Now you're saying, George, who's, who's Ebesheg? Well, do you remember in chapter 1, at the very beginning, the very few verses there, David is getting very old. He's finding it very hard to keep himself warm. The servants are able, not able to keep him warm with blankets. And in their great wisdom, they decided to search throughout all of Israel for a young virgin to come and care for the king and to physically warm him. So they got a very beautiful woman, Abishag, a Shumite woman, and she came and she cared for the king and she physically coddled him to keep him warm, although the scripture says that David did not know her. David did not know her. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you, from the standpoint of the culture at that time, Abishag would have been a concubine to David, even though he didn't physically know her. But the people would have looked at her as a wife of David. Everybody knows that that isn't possible in the, in the palace, but she would have been seen that way. So he... Adonijah comes and says, I would like for you to go and ask Solomon to give me a bishag as my wife. Now, here's where we can run into a problem, because sometimes we can read the scripture and assume things. And in our culture of romance and everything, we can look at this and say, oh, well, here's a young guy who, who basically is in love with this maiden who was caring for her dad, and so he wants to be married to her. Sounds like a very harmless thing that he's asking here. Uh, folks, by the way, he's not young. He's probably 40 at this time. And the reality is that there is something else going on here, although the text doesn't reveal it, and it's not young love. But the problem is, is that Bathsheba doesn't see it. So Bathsheba told him that she would speak to the king about this. She would go to her son, the king, and make the request for him. So she's going to go ahead and do this. She maybe hasn't thought this through, but she's going to go ahead and do this. So that brings us up to verse 19 now, where we're going to talk in verses 19 through 24, and we're going to see Solomon's response to this whole issue. And if you don't understand what's going on, you could sit there and say, whoa, where did that come from? Well, let's take a look at what's going on here, and I'll help you see it as we go along. First of all, when Bathsheba approached Solomon, he honored her by standing for her and bowing before her. So this is significant. When you came into the presence of a king in the ancient cultures, he wouldn't stand for you. You basically bowed down to him. You stood and bowed down to him. The king wouldn't do that. In this instance, 
the king is being approached by his mother. And so he is giving honor to his mother by what? Standing from his throne for her as she enters in. And then he bows down before her. This is pretty significant. Here's what else happens. A throne was brought for her and she was seated at Solomon's right hand. Again, there's a lot of powerful imagery here. So basically he bows down to her, they bring a throne, and then when they bring the throne and seat it in proximity to his throne, she is placed at the right hand. Now, again, the right hand is a place of power, it's a place of authority, it is a place of significant counsel, it is a place of honor, and here's what I want you to see, he is honoring his mother and giving her a righteous place on the right side of him and the throne so that they can confer and talk to each other. Bathsheba told him that she had a request and wanted him to grant it. So first thing she does is, hey son, I've got a request. I want you to give me what I'm asking for. Okay, I want you to give me what I'm asking for. Uh, so Solomon basically replied that he would not refuse a request from her. Basically, he says, yeah, mom, anything you want, I'll do for you. Now, let's qualify that because you can read that, especially in light of what we're going to see here in a moment and say, well, he went back on his word to his mother. Well, in his mind, he's thinking his mother is going to ask him something that in light of the kingdom is insignificant and he'll do whatever. But he's about to find out that what she's asking, there's something else going on that he's aware of, and he doesn't give her what she wants. So, but at first he's replying that he would refuse, would not refuse a request from her. So here's what she did. She asked that Abishag be given to Adonijah as a wife. So here she comes. She says, I want you to give your dad's concubine, Abishag, to your brother, Adonijah, your older brother, Adonijah, as his wife. And that's the request. And that's exactly what Adonijah wanted her to do. Now, here is where it gets interesting. And if you don't understand what's going on, if you don't understand the culture, you'd be like, what in the world is Solomon doing? Well, let's take a look at this. Here's what happens. Solomon questioned why she would make that request. So the very first thing he does is, why are you asking me this? Why are you asking me to give him a bishak? Why, why would you ask me that? He's trying to understand how she would come to the conclusion to come and ask him to ask this question. So he wants to know where this originated from. So the implication of the text is that, of course, she told him probably about Adonijah coming. So then he says, Solomon also asked if she wanted him to give Adonijah the kingdom. Whoa, wait a minute. Now, how do we get there, George? Because he was coming and asking for some gal to be his wife. How do we get to this point of the kingdom? Well, you need to understand their culture. Remember, 
Adonijah kind of told us that from the beginning. He said it was the expectation of Israel that he would be king. Why would it be their expectation? Because in their mind, the oldest would receive the inheritance. In their mind, the oldest would receive the kingship. But that's not what happened, is it? The kingship was given to Solomon. Now, in their culture, when a king came to power, his harem, and, the, and to be honest with you folks, the Israeli kings had a harem, and of course we know that David did because he had many wives and concubines. Saul had wives and concubines. Remember, the Lord told, told uh, David, you know, I gave you Saul's wives. Okay, so what happened was, is when a king came to power, he took the harem from the other king as his. That was a significant thing, giving him credibility as far as having the kingship. Now, here is a concubine who, even though she did not have sexual relationships with David, Abishag, if Abishag went to Adonijah as his wife, Adonijah could then also again make a claim to the throne based on two things now. Number one, he is the oldest son and he is now married to a wife of his father. And Solomon knows that. And so he asks his mother, what, are you wanting me to give him the kingdom as well? So here's what happens. Solomon also then, it's like he knows what's going on. He also identified Abathar the priest, that is the high priest, and Joab as being a part of this conspiracy. Now you're saying, wait a minute, George. When we looked at verses 12 up until this point, we really didn't see this. We, we really didn't see Abathar and Joab's name mentioned when he came to, to but Solomon realizes these guys have their part in this as well. So he realizes there's a conspiracy going on here. So he pronounced that Adonijah, his brother Adonijah, by his own request, had brought to himself death. So basically he pronounces judgment. He says by his own request, by making a play for the kingdom he was what? Bringing death upon himself. Now, this is in fulfillment to what Solomon had said earlier. This is in fulfillment to what Solomon had said earlier. What do you mean? Well, if you remember, when we uh, go and look back at uh, verse in chapter 1, Verse 52, then Solomon said, if he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So he, get, he left it in Adonijah's hands to determine his own fate. And here he is, he's catching Adonijah, trying to make a play for the kingdom again, and, of course, that results in a death sentence. So here's what happens now when we come to verse uh, 25. We're going to see 
really in verse 25 through 35, we're going to see retribution against the conspirators. Now, who are the conspirators? Adonijah, Abathar the priest, and of course, our good friend Joab, son of Uriah, son, son of Zariah. Now, let's go on. First of all, Adonijah was executed that very day by the hand of Benaiah. Now remember, Benaiah was one of those who was a servant of David, who was with Nathan the prophet, as well as others, Zadok the priest, who were doing what they can to make sure that Solomon got the kingship. Well, here, Benaiah is uh, serving the king, and here is he's basically the executioner. So he goes and executes Adonijah. That's it. Only one verse, verse 25. Get to verse 26 and 27. We now focus on what Solomon does with Abathar the priest. All right, so Solomon told Abathar to retire to his fields in Anotheth. So basically he says to Abathar, okay, you're done being the high priest. You're going into retirement. You're to stay on your lands. These were Levitical lands. You were to stay on your lands and in your fields in Anoheth. So basically he's stripping Abathar of the high priesthood. Abathar was worthy of death, Dave, uh, Solomon is saying here. He was worthy of death, but he was the high priest and suffered with David. So he makes a couple of points here that he had served he had carried the ark, meaning he had been serving before the ark as the high priest. He's not going to kill him. But he also says that when my father was on the run from Saul, you suffered with him. So because of these two things, being the high priest and suffering with David, Solomon's going to let Abathar live, but he's not going to let Abathar have any authority anymore. He basically tells him to go and retire to his fields. All right, so that's the second guy in the conspiracy. Now we come to the third guy, our good friend Joab. And so here's what the text tells us. Uh, first of all, before that, his removal as high priest was a fulfillment of the Lord's word to Eli. Look at verse 27. Uh, it says very clearly, uh, so Solomon removed Abathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which was spoken concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Now the reference for this real quick is this. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 30 to 35. And let's again look at that real quick here. It'll be up on your screen. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place and despise all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But if any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall but if any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house 
shall die in the flower of their age. Now it shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phianus, that in one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. All right, now this was the prophecy that was given to Eli. And so the writer of Kings is saying, by Abathar being stripped of the priesthood, it is a fulfillment of that. Why? Because the prophecy basically said, that no son of Eli would be able to grow old in that office like he did. What do you mean like he did? Remember, he lived to be in his 80s. So again, no one would, so he's removed from the office. It's given to his younger brother, Zadok. All right, so let's get to our friend Joab. All right, so when the news reached Joab, he went to the tabernacle to cling to the horns of the altar. Now, we've seen this happen before, and that was with Adonijah, remember? Adonijah, when he was fearful of Solomon because of his plot to try to take the kingdom, went to the tabernacle and grabbed the hold of the, of the brazen altar at the horns, and that was requesting refuge there. Now, when you requested refuge, no one could kill you there, except unless, of course, you were a murderer. If you were a murderer, you could be killed there at the altar. But if you were not, you were to be left there as a refuge. And that was what was called for in the law. So Solomon again sends Benaniah to call Joab to come from the tabernacle, but he refused. <laughs> and it's interesting. Joab's kind of got the idea of what's going on here. And he's not going anywhere Benaniah was said, come on, come on out of here. Come on, see the king. No, no, he isn't going to do that because he knows what's happened to Adonijah and he knows what's happened to Abathar and he is not going to go with this. So Solomon ordered Benaniah to kill Joab for the murders of Abnar and Amasa. All right, so he's basically sending Benaniah to to basically kill Joab there at the altar, at the horns, but he can do it because the justification is there. He has killed these two great men, these two commanders of Israel, and because he's a murderer, kill him there at the horns of the altar. So killing Joab, Solomon said, would remove the shame of the murders from David's house. See, here's the thing. This followed David all of his life. That Abner was killed and that Amasa was killed. And this could not be removed because he didn't do anything about it. He didn't take care of Joab when he should have. Well, by taking care of Joab, this would remove that stain from the house of David. And that's what Solomon is saying here. So Benaniah killed Joab by the altar, and then he was buried in his own land in the wilderness. Now, it's significant here. Listen, it's significant because normally with a murderer, they wouldn't bury you in your own property. But they did that with Joab. Why? 
Well, again, because Joab was of the mighty men of David. And also because Joab is related to the king. Remember, he's a cousin. So even though he was a murderer and he deserved his death, they still honored him by burying him on his own property, on his own inheritance that was in the wilderness, that is the wilderness of Judah. Now, Solomon placed Benaniah as the commander over the army and Zadok as the high priest. So remember, these are the two guys who were in support of Solomon coming to the kingship, but now because of this conspiracy, this second attempt by Adonijah, he's able to remove Joab from being the commander and Abathar from being the high priest. He replaces them now with people that he can trust, people that do what he wants. He replaces the places that as commander Benaniah, who is now the commander, and of course, Zadok, the priest, as now the high priest. So then now we come to the final guy that we need to talk about with regards to this whole issue of retribution. And that is the guy who insulted David. And David let him live. But remember, David asked for Solomon to, in his wisdom to deal with him and not let his head go down to the grave in peace. So what we see here is something very interesting. How does Solomon deal with this? Well, it's going to show you how he does that. So here's what happens. Solomon summoned Shammai and told him to build a house in Jerusalem. Remember, Shammai is a Benjamite, so obviously his inheritance would be in Benjamin, but the king, Solomon, calls for him to come to him. Of course, he comes to Jerusalem. And the king tells him, I want you to build a house here in Jerusalem. He then tells Shammai this. Shammai was not allowed to leave the city and would die if he crossed the brook Kidron. See, outside of the old city, which you would know in Jerusalem today, Outside of the fortress of Jerusalem at that time was this brook that would go through in the Kidron Valley, which was the brook Kidron. And so, De so Solomon is saying to Shammai, you are to build yourself a house here and you're to remain in Jerusalem. And if you cross that brook to leave Jerusalem, you will die. Now, Shammai stated that Solomon's word was good. And he committed himself to it. And why would he say that was good? Well, listen, folks, think about it. In the ancient kingdoms of the time, the non-Jewish kingdoms, somebody would say, okay, my dad, you did my dad wrong. They would have killed him. So rather than being killed because he knows he did wrong against David, rather than being killed, the son of David, Solomon, is to giving him a choice. You can live here in Jerusalem forever, but if you leave this city, you will die, versus what everybody else does, and that's what would have been just to kill him. So the options are pretty good for Shammai. He'll still live, but he's just got to live in Jerusalem. And to be honest with you, he is a wealthy man, so he could have handled this. And he commits himself to it. Now the text goes on, the writer of Kings goes on and tells you that something interesting happens. What do you mean? Well, a while later, 
two slaves escaped from Shammai and went to Gath. Remember Gath? That's in Philistia. It's among the Philistines. And he goes to the current Ictish who lives there. These two spies. Excuse me, these two slaves. So obviously Shammai has some sort of wealth because he's got slaves. And two of his slaves hightail it. They escape and go back to Gath. They probably were Philistine slaves. Shammai then went to Gath to get his slaves and returned back to Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. He maybe didn't think anything of this. Who knows? The text doesn't tell us. But he's pretty much bold because he, what? He goes after his slaves. Goes to Gath, which is a distance away, to get his slaves from Ictish, brings them back, and returns back to Jerusalem. Well, the text tells you that Solomon was told that Shammai left for Gath and came back. So basically he broke what he committed himself to. He broke the agreement that Solomon made with him, that he would live forever in Jerusalem. But the moment he left Jerusalem, the moment he crossed over the Kidron Brook, he would what? He would face death. So Solomon confronted Shammai with his breaking the command not to leave Jerusalem. So obviously Shammai is called to the court, to the palace, to the throne, and Solomon confronts him with what he's done. But that's not all he confronts him with. Solomon also pointed out that Shammai, pointed out Shammai's wickedness towards David. So he reminds Shammai of the wickedness that he did to his father David when he was running from Absalom. So Solomon commanded Benaniah to strike Shammai down with the sword. Pretty brutal, but pretty efficient. Uh, he has him killed. And the writer points out that the kingdom was now established in the hand of Solomon. I, you might be wondering, why Why would, okay, I can understand George getting rid of Adonijah. I can understand getting stripping the priesthood from Abathar the priest. I can even understand getting rid of Joab. But how would Shammai's death help strengthen his rule? Well, remember, Shammai was from the household of Saul. From the household of Saul. And there was this thing with the household of Saul and, quote, their claim against the throne. Well, that's not going to be an issue anymore. There was probably also the thought that maybe Shammai, because he was with the men of Benjamin when David came back from, uh, from fleeing from Absalom, that maybe he could have stirred up a rebellion among the Benjamites against the kingdom. Well, that's all removed. And so that only strengthens the hand of Solomon as he is king over Israel now. It strengthens his kingdom. So that brings us really to the end of chapter 2. So that now brings us to the section that we're going to call Solomon's Wisdom, which we find in chapter 3, verses 1 to 28, as well as a section of it in chapter 1, verses 1 to 12 in Second Chronicles. So when we come there, it starts out really giving you uh, really the setting 
or really, how should I say, the nature of the time. What's going on in Israel at the time. We kind of see that in the first three verses. So what I want you to notice is, is having made a treaty with Pharaoh, Solomon married his daughter. Now, folks, this is going to be a foreshadowing of something that's going to become a problem for Solomon later on. Because later on, it's going to tell you that Solomon took many foreign wives and the foreign wives did what? Turn his heart away from the Lord. But here we go. The first one is, is he makes a treaty, a peace treaty with Pharaoh. Now, how in the world does he end up with Pharaoh's daughter? Well, typically how they did that in that day for a long time in the ancient cultures is what, what happened is, is that a young king like Solomon, how you would ensure the peace is the one king would give his daughter to the other king and there would be a family bond there now. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here is that Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh. It also says in this passage, because there was no temple yet, the people sacrificed at the high places. Now, what's a high place, George? Well, it's the hill country of Judea, the hill country of Israel. So in the high places, they would go and build an altar to the Lord and they would sacrifice there. Now, this would be a constant issue with Israel to the very end at the Babylonian captivity. Why? Because they would not just sacrifice to Yahweh in these high places. We're going to see later that they would sacrifice to the Canaanite gods and to foreign gods there. So what we see is because there's no central location for worship, remember the tabernacle is in Galbia, and but the ark is in Jerusalem, there's no central location, so the people would sacrifice at the high places. It also tells us that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statues of his father David. So Solomon loved the Lord. He, it's very clear there at this point, he's, he's, his heart is with the Lord and he's walking in the statues of his father. That is the commands, the way that his dad would have wanted him to be king and to live. But it does point out something that is a negative. However, Solomon did sacrifice and burn incense in the high places. So rather than just going to one place, Gabeah, where the tabernacle is, and he does do that, we're going to see that here in a moment, that he does do that, he goes to all of these different high places and makes sacrifices there and burns incense. So he's adding to the problem by giving credibility to the problem because he's the king, he's going and doing that. So we see that here as a negative. So then we come to verse 4, and it's going to talk about verses 4 through 15. We also see this in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1 in Second Chronicles. We're going to see that the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. Now how does that happen? Well, Solomon, according to Chronicles, gathered the assembly and went to the most important high place in Gabeon. So when he gathered the assembly, that means he gathered Israel. The assembly refers to Israel here. So he gathered Israel to come to the most important place, the most important high place of all the high places. Why? Because that's where the tabernacle was in Gabeon. 
And at the tabernacle, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings. Folks, we're talking about a thousand animals, bulls, sheep being slaughtered as a sacrifice to the Lord and being consumed by fire on the altar. He offered a thousand burnt offerings. Then here's what happens. This is an amazing passage. This is a very special passage to me uh, because I remember reading this and coming to some conclusions when I was a young man, a new believer in Christ. But that evening, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. So God appears to Solomon in a dream. And Solomon was to ask the Lord what he should give Solomon. How would you like that to happen, folks? How would you like the Lord to come to you and say to you, hey, George, tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. I mean, we would like that, wouldn't we? I mean, that would be awesome for God say, hey, what would you want? I'll give it to you. That's what he's doing here with Solomon. That's what he's doing here with Solomon. I don't know of anyone else that he's done that with except Solomon. So here's what he does. He does it with Solomon. Now, here's how Solomon responds. Now, this is amazing how he responds. It's actually reflective of his heart at this time. So what does he do? Solomon recounted what the Lord had done for his father, and he humbled himself before him. So he recounts how the Lord took care of his father, established his father's household, gave him the kingship, and he humbles himself before God. So now he asks God what he wants. And I think this is amazing. This is a testimony to us. He then asked the Lord to grant him wisdom to judge the Lord's people, Israel. Think about that. He could have asked the Lord for riches, could have asked him for a long life. He could have asked him for anything. What does he do? God, you've sent me as king over these people. Give me the wisdom to know how to judge them, to guide them. Isn't that awesome? This really much reflects the attitude and the heart of Solomon at this point. Well, Here's what I want you to see. The text tells us that because this request from Solomon pleased the Lord, he granted him wisdom and riches. So to this day, we say that there was no other king like Solomon in the world who would surpass all the world in his wisdom and surpass all the world in his riches. I'm telling you, folks, there's never been another kingdom like this in Israel another kingship in the glory and the awesomeness of Solomon and the wealth that he had and in the wisdom that he had to adjudicate Israel. This is amazing. And God granted him this. But he also tells Solomon this. He also told Solomon that if he walked in the Lord's commandments, he will lengthen his days. Basically, in fact, that comes out in Proverbs. Proverbs says the very same things about following the Lord's commands and you will lengthen your, your days. The Lord is telling Solomon that. 
Well, that brings us now really to the last section of our time together that really illustrates the whole issue of Solomon's wisdom now that he's received from the Lord. And we're going to find it. It's only mentioned here in 1 Kings. It's in chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. And it has to do with the case of the two prostitutes. Two prostitutes or two harlots. So when you come to verse 16, you see that two harlots came to the king in order to resolve their problem about a child. Now you say, how is it that two prostitutes are able to come to the king and have the king solve their problem? Well, remember, all the way from Moses, he had set up a system at the encouragement of his father-in-law, Jethro. He had set up a system where he wouldn't have to adjudicate everything, but that things would go to judges and to different levels of judges, and then the most severe cases would be brought to Moses. It is more than likely that this is the system that still is operating in Israel to this day, and the most severe cases are brought to the king for him to judge. So these two harlots obviously have an issue that the other folks couldn't figure out, so they bring it to the king to render judgment. So the first woman stated that they lived together in the same house. So these two women lived together. The first woman gave birth to a child, and three days later, the other woman gave birth. So they had children around the same time. First woman gave birth to her child. Three days later, the second woman gives birth to her child. The second woman's child died because the woman lay on him as they slept. She basically suffocated her child in the middle of the night. That woman rose in the evening and traded her dead child for the living child. This is all according to the first woman. So in the middle of the night, realizing that she has suffocated her own child, the text is telling us that she then got up and replaced took the living child from its mother who was asleep and replaced it with her dead child. The second woman claimed the living child was her son. So Solomon is supposed to judge this. How do you judge this? So folks, listen, this is why I'm sure the other judges probably couldn't handle this. It's like, whoa, this is beyond me. How do you figure out whose child whose mother this child is. So here's what Solomon does. The text tells you that he called for a sword to be brought to him. Whoa, if you just stop right there, what's going on here? Well, he commanded that the child be divided in two and each woman would receive a part. So basically, he's commanding that the child be split in two and each mother would then be given a half of the child. Now here's what happens. Feeling compassion for her son, the first woman cried out to the king. So the first woman, who is the actual mother, feels compassion for her child, and the thought of him being killed in this decision, she cries out to the king. She called for the child to be given to the second woman so that he might live. So that would be a natural reaction from a mother, right? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't kill him. You just give her, let him live. You, you know. So that's what she's doing here. 
I want you to notice the callousness of the second woman. The second woman called for the child to be divided so that no one has him. Whoa, that, that's, that's pretty evil here. So basically the second woman saying, go ahead, kill him so that nobody gets him. Solomon commanded that the child be given to the first mother since she is the first woman since she is the mother. So Solomon says, wait a minute, go ahead and give her to the first woman. She is the true mother. And he decides this case. Wow, this is the wisdom of Solomon. It's amazing. And then the text closes with this statement. All Israel feared Solomon when they saw the wisdom of God was in him. This created awe, respect, and fear because now there is one who sits on the throne who judges with the wisdom of God. And so that brings us to the end of chapter 3. Now, next week, we're going to head right into chapter 4, as well as we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the whole issue of um, Second Chronicles now. And so what are we looking at? Well, we're going to look at, again, where Solomon is and his kingship and his ruling, the provision for him. But we're also going to be looking at the whole issue of now the preparation for and the building of the temple because that is what would take place. And this would be the greatest temple ever in the history of Israel, Solomon's temple. And so we're going to look at that next week. So I'm glad you were with us today. Uh, we hope that you will join us next week as we continue on in our survey of the Old Testament, looking at First, Second Kings, Second Chronicles.